And back once again for the Employment Hour, the number to get hold of Lior anytime, 1-855-821-5900, online, Lior at employmenthour.com. That's for some emails. We always start the show, my friend, with the week that was. How was it? Well, John, it was a good week, nice weather, and uh, enjoyed it. But of course, employment <laughs> uh, employment issues continue uh, to accumulate, even though it's uh, nice outside. So let me tell you about a couple of situations that I dealt uh, with this week. And I'm going to put this under the heading of employers acting prematurely. Mm. Uh, in the first situation, uh, I uh, was contacted by a gentleman uh, from Ottawa who had uh, been on uh, disability leave, hadn't worked for over three years. Uh, he had been in a very, very serious car accident, uh, unrelated to work, uh, had been off uh, on disability. Uh, at one point, wasn't sure if he'd ever work again, but slowly was, was getting better, was going through physiotherapy and working hard to resume his uh, previous level of activity. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, he received a letter from his employer saying, well, you've been gone three years plus and uh, we don't believe you're going to come back to work. Therefore, we're ending your employment. We're terminating the relationship with you. And he contacted me wanting to know, can they do that? What does that all mean? Now, before I, I tell you what I advise this person and give you some more information, you know, to set the scene a bit, uh, in a situation where there's a very long absence, an employer is allowed to end the relationship. We refer to that as a frustration mm -hmm. of contract. But there needs to be two things that happen before the employer can do that. Number one, there has to be a very lengthy absence, often you know, a year or two years or more. Fine, we had that. But the second thing that has to happen, there has to be no prospect of the employee returning to work in the near future. So lengthy absence and no prospect of returning to work. Well, what happened in this situation is shortly before he was terminated, in fact, he got some good news from his doctor that he was improving significantly and that the doctor believed that in three or four months he'd be able to go back to work. Now, the employer did not ask for that information. The employer never said, tell us what your current status is. Tell us if you are able to come back to work. They simply assumed that because he was gone for that long, he'll yeah, never he come back. back. Well, that because of that, they didn't meet the second criteria. So when they've terminated him, that is really a termination requiring them to pay full severance. It may even be a human rights violation. This guy had been there for a total of 15 years. So this employer is probably going to pay somewhere north of 18 months of compensation. And they could, potentially could have avoided this situation if they had simply asked them, give us an update. Tell us how wow. you're doing. So remember, for employers, you can't just terminate employment for someone that's been on an absence for a very long period of time unless you know that there's no likelihood of them coming back to work. And employees, if you're in that situation, remember, there's recourse. Give me a call. Can the employer backtrack and say, okay, you know what? Nah, never mind. We take it back. Well, the thing is the employer may be able to do that, except mm -hmm. in this situation they haven't done that. In this situation they say, no, no, we still disagree with you because no. you've been gone for that long. Well, that, that's simply wrong. If the employer takes it back, if the employee feels that there is a, a relationship that can still be sustained and, and salvaged, then you could potentially make let bygones be bygones and continue. But in my experience, that doesn't happen very often. Okay, what else we got? Second situation, again, employers acting prematurely. Uh, another gentleman that called me uh, this week, simply because he was called into a meeting uh, at the beginning of the week, on the second day of the week on the job, and told, yesterday when you were at work, we heard from a co-worker of yours that you were smelling of alcohol. And because of that, we've decided to let you go. It's unacceptable, so we let you go. Uh, so I, first of all, I asked this person, were you really uh, smelling of alcohol? He said, as far as I know, I wasn't. I did have a beer with lunch, but I, I, I don't think there was anything unusual about that. Now, the problem here for the employer 
Number one is the fact that the employer itself didn't really investigate. They didn't ask my it's client hearsay, right? any questions. It's hearsay, and they didn't get his side of the story. Uh, maybe he went uh, uh, down the street and someone accidentally poured a beer over him. I'm, you know, I'm, you know nope. I mean, th- there could be another side of the story. Number one. Number two, whenever you're faced with a situation where there's an alcohol-related issue, you want to find out what it's all about simply because if someone has an alcohol problem, someone is an alcoholic, that is a disability. And if you're letting someone go because of their disability, that's a human rights violation. So in this situation, the employer, number one, should have verified what actually happened. Was he smelling of alcohol? Did he drink? Was he fit to do the, to do the job, number one? And number two, if he wasn't fit to do the job, if he was smelling of alcohol, try to find out if there's an underlying medical condition. Ask the question, uh, et cetera, because otherwise you could be uh, faced with a human rights violation this termination was way premature. Mm-hmm. It was, in the eyes of the law, would be a termination without cause. So the employer has to pay severance, even though they thought they could terminate for cause. That was wrong. If the employer was suspecting at that point, maybe he does have a problem. How do they? How do they go about, uh, you know, couching that with the person? You know, things you can and cannot ask an employee. It is perfectly fine to ask an employee if you have reason to believe that there could be a problem, whether they have a problem with alcohol, if, if they're seeking treatment, if they've, they've been diagnosed with a problem, if, they, if the employee denies it and says, absolutely not, never happened, not at all, well, it is what it is. You can't go beyond that. But, if the, uh, but that's the primary obligation, to try to ask the right questions and find out that information. And uh, if, if, if the employee does say that there's a problem, you, then you want to dig deeper and find something from, from a doctor, ask for a doctor's note, a doctor's letter, something to, to corroborate that. Because just like uh, having a, a bad knee, that's a disability. You can't penalize someone for that. It's the same thing with alcoholism. Uh, it's just about getting that, the right information and asking the questions. We'll take a short break. You want to get a hold of Lior outside of show hours, by the way, Lior, L-I-O-R, at employmenthour.com. And his number anytime, 1-855-821-5900. The Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. Back with more of the Employment Hour. The number is one 821 5900 That's Lior's direct number, Lior, at employmenthour.com. We'll get to the... Uh, calculator here in just a bit but first we're going to talk about this and that is things that can get you fired for cause and things that cannot how about that we'll start with yes how about the yes column yeah well you know first of all obviously as i alluded to uh, earlier and i've said before on the show a termination for cause is an extreme measure Mm -hmm. it's it's the worst punishment that an employer can impose on an employee because it's the worst punishment it's reserved for the worst offenders and there's many, many cases I, I deal with every single day without any exception where I speak with people that were quote-unquote let go for cause when it's not even close to being cause. So think about uh, you know, being, uh, being jailed for life, your life sentence. Who's going to get the life sentence? The worst offenders. If you uh, cross the street and didn't uh, uh, go to the stoplight, you may get penalized, you may get a fine, uh, but you're not going to go to jail for life. It's the same thing here with the termination for cause. Maybe you did some things wrong. Maybe you did some things that uh, you shouldn't have done or were in contravention of your employer's policy, but the question is, is that cause? Now, there are some things, as you've said, John, that will always be cause. So let's talk about a few things that are always cause. For example, theft. So if you steal from your employer, guess what? You're going to be fired for cause if you're caught. I don't care if there's an extenuating circumstances. I don't care if it's the first time you've done it. Uh, No one's going to say, well, you know, you've only stolen once, so may as well let you try to do it again. So (laughs) theft is is so fundamental to the employment relationship. You can't trust an employee. You can't have an employee if you think they're going to steal from you because they've done that before. So that would always be cause. So whenever we're looking at theft, 
yeah, the ultimate penalty is deserving. That employee can't continue working. But mm-hmm. that also underscores the level of conduct that it would take to reach the, le- the, the, the level of cause. Uh, it's really the, the most serious misconduct, John. Okay. What else? Well, the other thing is uh, violence in the workplace, for example. If you've hit someone, if you were uh, physically uh, aggressive with another employee, with your supervisor, etc., unless there's completely uh, unusual extenuating circumstances, that's going to be cause for termination. And uh, in most cases, that's unacceptable, and an employer does not have to, uh, to accept that. So there's laws now requiring an employer to, uh, pr- uh, to protect their other employees from harassment and, and from violence. So if you are one of the guilty culprits, if you were violent, that's going to be the type of level that uh, rises to the level of cause. Well, you mentioned it right there, and this is something that, uh, you know, it invades sometimes the workplace and the lowest levels to the entry-level positions right up to the president of the company, and that's sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, in this day and age, there isn't any tolerance, nor should there be any tolerance for that type of conduct. So if uh, if you've been found to have been guilty of sexual harassment, uh, I don't really care what the circumstances, that's caused. That said, John, uh, the employer would have to be pretty darn sure that you did it. It's not enough to say, well, we believe so, we think so, you know, someone suggested that it may have happened. The employer has to engage in an investigation to, to, to find out what actually happened. In many cases, it would be appropriate to bring in an outside investigator to find out what actually happened in the workplace. And only then, once it's established, the employer is convinced that the conduct happened, yes, that's cause. At that point, you, you can feel free, the employer, to terminate for cause but again, first of all, let's establish that the person did it. I think everybody can guess and understand what you know major sexual harassment is. But how how fine a line can you go? What is what is deemed or you may have not, without listening to the show, realized that is sexual harassment, but it could be. Yeah, yeah, and that's a very very good point because the, the term sexual harassment. I mean, if we asked ten different people what sexual harassment is to them, they may have different uh, answers. Uh, and you know your tolerance may be different than someone else's tolerance. But in the eyes of the law, sexual harassment is any type of uh, activity or conduct or, or, or uh, contact that would be considered by the other person reasonably to not be welcomed. So any type of conduct of a sexual nature that would be considered unwelcome. Now, that's very, very broad, and, and the circumstances have to be looked at. So, for example, if we're on the shop floor John, and, you know, it, it's common for people to, to, you know, smack each other on the rear end, yep. uh, you know, I mean, as silly as that is. And it, it's going to be very difficult to, to fire someone because they did that, because that's almost the type of conduct that's expected. But if you're in a professional office and uh, a boss slaps a secretary on the rear end, guess what? That could easily be considered sexual harassment, and that could be caused, if not for termination, then for very serious discipline. So the circumstances of each case have to be looked at, the context, the workplace, the timing, the people involved, all of that form a part of what is sexual harassment. I think there was a, a story earlier this week where uh, a potential employee who was just on the cusp of being offered a job uh, mistakenly sexed a picture to the person who was hiring him, to the company, but he did twice. So they kind of rescinded the offer when that came yeah. down. So that was a bad mistake, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, preemptive could, sexual could, harassment. Preemptive. I could see a situation if they really liked the picture, they offer them a promotion. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. But no, I, I, that, that's probably inappropriate. Uh, and, and certainly, they're, they're all joking aside, the many cases that I've dealt with over the years with someone sending inappropriate pictures to mm-hmm. another coworker. And absolutely, that's a classic example of what could be sexual harassment. Even though you didn't mean it, you were joking around, you thought that's fine. But if my sensitivities are different than yours and you send me an explicit picture of something you found online, that absolutely could be considered sexual harassment. What are we uh, getting out of line before we take a break? How about fraud? 
Yeah, you know, uh, fraud goes hand in hand with theft. Right. If you've committed some sort of fraud in the workplace, either defrauding your employer or a client, that's the type of conduct that an employer cannot accept, cannot allow. It's fundamental to the relationship. So if you've been guilty of uh, fraud, if you've been found guilty of fraud, that is cause for termination. But remember, John, the employer would first have to establish mm-hmm. that you actually did it. And you can argue it, and you'd have to bring points to your own case as well, right? Absolutely. You, right. You'd, you, should, you should never, in any of these circumstances, unless you're, you're somehow caught on video, which is going to be really rare, the employer has to always get your side of the story and allow you to present a, a counterpoint and an explanation. Been talking about things that can get you fired for cause and things that cannot are coming up next. First, we'll take a short break. The number one 821 5900 to get a hold of Lior and Lior at employmenthour.com. We'll get to a few emails uh, during the course of the show as well. This is the Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. And back with more of the Employment Hour, 1-855-821-5900. And uh, Lior at employmenthour.com. We'll get an email here in just a few minutes that you've been uh, sending to them since the uh, show started. We were talking about things that can get you fired for cause and things that cannot. How about some of the ones that cannot? Yeah, so remember what we talked about some very... Uh, extreme examples of the type of conduct that could terminate or could require the employer or allow the employer to terminate for cause. Very serious misconduct. Unfortunately, many employers, most employers uh, I've seen, pull the trigger way before they should. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about the types of conduct, the types of situation where never, almost never are going to be cause for termination. For example, isolated incidents of misconducts. You did something wrong. Maybe, you, I don't know, maybe you were late. Tipped over a skid of yeah. whatever or something. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe you even, you know, you, you're, you're talking to your employer in a way you shouldn't have in a disrespectful way. Not not a good thing. You should never do that. But if it's an isolated incident, right. if you've never been warned or disciplined about that before, you have a clean record, that's not going to be cause. Our highest court in this country, the Supreme Court of Canada, has said very clearly that isolated incidents are almost never going to be cause for termination. So if that's what's happened here, well, guess what? Isolated incidents are not going to be caused. And uh, for an employer to be able to use an incident as grounds, as cause for termination, Mm -hmm. they'd have to show that history. They'd have to show that this has happened before, that they've tried to deal with it before, that they provided uh, warnings or other discipline, and you clearly don't get it. So now when you talk rudely to me, it's the third time I've warned you before. Now I can let you go for cause. That's how extreme it is. So now it's no longer isolated, right? Now there's a history. Now there's a history. And the employer is the one that has to document it. How about uh, poor performance? Yeah, poor performance. And probably the most common grounds that I see for people being let go for cause is because what the employer says is poor performance. John, you just didn't do a good enough job or or you're not meeting our standards and our milestones, so we're going to let you go for cause. Remember, an employer can always let you go without cause. The difference is severance. Without cause means you get your full severance. With cause means you don't get severance. So if you're going to let someone go for poor performance, yeah, you'd have to pretty much show that the person went out of their way to be a bad performer, to to not do what they had to, that it's almost on purpose. They were purposely lazy or or, uh, unwilling to, to do what's required, that you provided warnings, you provided help, maybe training, Maybe put them on a performance improvement plan. You've tried all that, and they still don't get it. They still can't do it. At that point, you have to put up your hands and say, what more can I do with this bad employee? But even then, if you're going to hold an employee to meeting certain milestones and they don't meet it, mm-hmm. well, you have to show that those milestones are reasonable. So if you have a sales target that you're imposing on an employee, if that target is unreasonable to begin with, you can't say to the employee, you haven't met the target. We warned you about this. You still haven't met the target. We're going to let you go. 
So again, the, the target has to still be reasonable. I had a case last week where the, the, the employer kept uh, increasing the threshold that they wanted their salespeople to meet. And at some point it got so ridiculous that no one could meet it and they started disciplining people for not meeting this unreasonable threshold. It doesn't work that way. Just dangling the carrot, they'll never get it in their mouth. Yeah, right? and, yeah. And, but, and it's one thing to say, you know, we're not going to give a bonus unless you meet the threshold, right. but to say we're, we're going to fire you if you don't meet this unreasonable threshold that you, we unilaterally set, no, you can't do that. It sounds like in every one of those cases, though, the employer, again, has to keep a history going, either written or otherwise, that this is to, to, to build up, right? Always, 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 always. It's almost impossible to let someone go for cause without showing that past record, that past history. If it, Even if it's not an isolated incident, it's still on the employer to prove that there was previous incidents. They can't say, well, Bob knows because we talked to him about it. That's not good enough. You have to show that written record. And only then maybe you can terminate for cause. As the, as the employer is keeping that written record, do they have to tell the employee that we are keeping record of this? Uh, they don't have to tell okay. the employee, but, they, but it should be obvious because if they're keeping record, the employee would have received a warning letter. Mm -hmm. And the employee doesn't need to be told you know, why they received the warning letter or that the employer is keeping the, the warning letter. The employee should have received that warning letter. Either the employee should have signed it or at least there should be some way to prove that they received it. Maybe we send it to them by email mm -hmm. so we know they got it. Uh, and, and that warning letter needs to make it clear. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what we need you to do, and here's what's going to happen if you don't do it. In what can words, the employee do well, the employee, in response? So if the employee feels that the employer is building up that case against them, so the employee feels that now they're being warned, they've been written up, maybe uh, there's a suspension, so that employer is getting ready maybe to terminate mm -hmm. them for cause. Well, the employee needs to do the same thing on their end, build up their own case respond to the employer in writing, say why they disagree with the criticism or why they disagree with what the employer say, says that they've done, uh, number one. Number two, they want to keep copies of any documents that help establish that maybe they didn't do what's alleged of them. Uh, and so, so keep those documents, keep records, and of course, do the best uh, in your job. Make it even more difficult for your employer to terminate you for cause. And certainly, if, if despite all that, you walk into a meeting with HR and the employer says, we are letting you go for cause, you have to give me a call. We'll get these last couple in here before the break, and that is being late. That uh, sounds kind of obvious, right? But yeah, you know, and, and, and being late, again, I'm not trying to suggest, John, that that's not a problem. Of course it is. No one should be late to work, and no employer should be happy about that. But again, unless you build that record, unless you've warned the person, unless you've provided them an opportunity to, to improve, uh, maybe suspended them, you cannot use that as grounds for cause. The other thing to remember about being late is what's the practice generally in the workplace? So if you've kind of run a, a loosey-goosey operation, people can come in, yeah, 9, 9.30, it doesn't really matter. Well, you can't just wake up one day and say, well, today you came in at 9.30, now we care about that, now we're going to discipline you. you got to have a consistent practice, and an employee cannot be blamed for doing what he or she thinks is appropriate to do. How about uh, insubordination? What's under that banner? Yeah, insubordination, really, I'm talking about uh, you know, disrespectful conduct towards someone that's superior to you. So your boss talking really to your boss or not doing something that your boss requires you to, uh, to do. Again, as an isolated incident, insubordination is almost never going to be cause. Again, it could be cause for discipline, but not cause for termination. So insubordination can be cause for, for, for termination if it's not an isolated incident, if there's that record that the employer kept with warnings, suspensions, et cetera. So one incident is just not going to cut it. We'll take a short break. The number is 1-855-821-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. And we'll get to an email as soon as we come back right here on the Employment Hour on Talk Radio, AM 640 and AM 900, CHML.
Back with more of the Employment Hour. You want to get a hold of Lior, it is Lior at employmenthour.com for email and one 821 5900 We'll get to an email as promised as soon as I got back. This came in uh, today, as a matter of fact, a few minutes ago. Adam, let me read this. It says, I was given a, an ultimatum to either resign or be fired because the owner of the company caught me t- uh, talking on Skype at the office. I have until Monday to decide. What do I do? Yeah, no, good question. I think it relates to what we've just been talking about, a termination for cause. So... Let's talk about talking on Skype uh, at the office. Clearly, let me make it you know very abundantly clear. That's not something sh- someone should do. Obviously, if you're talking on Skype with your uh, grandma when you should be working, that could be considered time theft. That's not a good thing. But again, John, if that's an isolated incident, if, if Adam right. just had a bad judgment call, he shouldn't have done it, uh, but he did, that's not cause for termination. What does that mean to his question? That means that the employer has a few options. One of them is they, they still, if they still want Adam gone, they have to terminate him without cause and pay him his full severance based on his age, position, and length of employment. Uh, if they uh, don't want to do that, they can discipline him. Okay? They can provide a warning, a suspension, etc., to make sure that he understands that he cannot do this again. Mm-hmm. But because of what they've done, they say resign or be fired. No way should he resign because if he resigns, guess what? He probably doesn't get anything. Uh, he should tell his employer, I'm not resigning. You do what you need to do because if that employer lets him go, he gets his full severance. That will not be caused. No way. Is there any leeway with stuff like that with uh, Skyping, emailing, maybe shopping online, checking out Amazon for five minutes while you're at the desk? I mean, is there any leeway with employers for that? Yes, there, there is. And it's really considered, you know, timing and context is, is appropriate to, to consider. So if you are on Amazon for a few minutes in your lunch break, that's one thing. Right. If you're on Amazon for an hour uh, at 10 in the morning when you should be working, that's a different thing. So yes, there is some leeway. Some employers have more strict policies than others. So it comes down to that policies. If you're going to have a, a no internet use policy or no personal internet use policy, well, you better have that policy in writing. People better know about it and you better tell people what's going to happen if they break that policy. You can't assume that that's something that's understood. So if yeah, you have to have a policy like that and someone breaches it even for a short period of time, that's cause for discipline, but not necessarily cause for termination. Get to one more uh, email here before we get back to our uh, topic for the day. I uh, said, Hamid says, I'm a salesperson. I work mainly from the co- uh, company's office. I usually work 50 to 60 hours a week. I get paid a salary and never received any overtime. Should the company pay overtime? Good, good question, Hamid. Yeah. Uh, there are some exemptions uh, to overtime. Uh, for example, we know managers don't get overtime. We know, we know pool cleaners, John, uh, uh, don't get overtime. There's also some exemptions for salespeople. Usually, though, salespeople that don't work in the office, so people that are on the road, on the mm-hmm. road salespeople, generally are not entitled to overtime. But if I understand Hamid, he actually does work uh, in the employer's offices, probably mans the phones and makes calls. He is entitled to overtime, and that overtime would be calculated on the basis of 44 hours a week. So if he's working 50 to 60 hours a week, well, that's 6 to 16 hours every single week. He should get paid time and a half. And potentially, he could go back two years and claim for that overtime. So yeah, he is owed overtime. uh, And I would recommend he give me a call so I can find out more uh, about his situation to show to find out first of all can he prove that he's worked those hours is there a way that the hours is, hours are kept docketed or logged into a computer 
Because if they are, then yeah, there's no reason you shouldn't get that overtime. Let's talk about uh, something you've brought up in the show many times in the last couple of years, but it's a term not many people understand. That is duty to accommodate. What is that? The duty to accommodate, John, is a very broad duty, and it's a subset of our human rights laws. And what it does is it requires or imposes obligations on the employer to make changes to the workplace to help people, whether they're, uh, they're sick and they have a, a medical condition, or whether there's other needs that they have that correspond with their human rights, uh, that uh, need to be addressed in order for the employer to uh, for the employee to continue working. So, an example: an employee that has a medical condition or a disability, they may need modified duties. Maybe a job that requires them to not stand as much. Mm-hmm. So, changing the job is a form of accommodation. Maybe they need reduced hours. So, reducing the hours because of a medical condition is a form of accommodation. There's other forms of accommodation. For example, an employer is required to provide accommodation to help someone with their family obligations. So if there's a mother, for example, that has to be able to leave work by a certain time because the only way she could care for her child or pick her child up is by leaving work at a certain time, an employer may have to make changes to allow that mother to leave work early. So any type of uh, changes to the workplace is a form of accommodation. Uh, But again, it's not because uh, the duty is not triggered by, by an employee saying, hey, I would like to work different hours. There has to be a reason, either a medical reason back that's uh, that's, uh, corroborated by a doctor or some other reason that's tied to a human right. How often do you get that across uh, your desk, the one about especially a mother having to change her hours and not having or getting fired for it? You know, uh, up until maybe a couple of years ago, you never saw that. A couple of years ago, there was a case that got a lot of attention across Canada uh, with a mother that that worked for a a, uh, federal organization and the employer refused to accommodate uh, her. She wanted a schedule that allowed her to work uh, just days and, and instead of rotating schedule, she works days and nights to care for her child. The employer refused. That went all, all the way to the uh, to the court of appeal in, in this province. And the not only was the employer found to have violated her human mm-hmm. rights, there was a, a lot of compensation ordered. Since then, that issue has come to the fore more. We have a lot of cases like that that come up where there's an obligation to accommodate a mother or any parent. And it doesn't have to be with respect to child or okay. to children. So, for example, I may have to care for my mother. I, you know, I'm the only caregiver that she has. She may have a medical condition. For me to be able to meet that obligation, uh, I need to uh, be able to leave work at a certain time. So long as what I'm asking is reasonable, and so long as really that's the only way I can meet that obligation, an employer is going to have a duty to accommodate. And does the employer have the right to say, okay, but you have to make up those hours somewhere else, make up the work somewhere else? Yes, an employer can, as long as you can make up the work and still be able to be accommodated. As long Because okay. if you say, well, you can leave at 4 tomorrow, uh, but you have to work till 7 the day after, well, wait a second, that doesn't solve the problem. Right. But if there's a way for me to make up the hours and still be accommodated, absolutely an employer can require that to happen. Is there a time limit how long an employer has to tolerate, not tolerate, but have to agree with this for? Not necessarily, because the duty to accommodate is to the point of what we call undue hardship. In other words, you have to accommodate an employer up to the point where it becomes extremely difficult. Now, what's extremely difficult is going to be different in every situation. What's extremely difficult for the Royal Bank of Canada, they have thousands of employees, may be different than what's uh, uh, extremely difficult for Bob's grocery store mm-hmm. where he has two employees. Uh, but for the most part, it's a very strict duty. And even if it's difficult to accommodate, you have to still do it. Take a short break. You want to get a hold of us, we'll uh, get to another email after the break. It is Lior at employmenthour.com. And his number is one 821 5900 The Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML.
The Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 right here. It is 1-855-821-5900 and Lior at employmenthour.com. We're talking about the duty to accommodate. Um, let me ask you this, and when is an employee not entitled to accommodation? Well, an employee is not entitled to accommodation. Let's talk about, for example, a medical condition. If the accommodation that they're asking for is not backed up or corroborated by a doctor. So if they think, well, I have a bad back, it's going to be easier for me if I work in position B instead of position A, that's not good enough. An employer then does not have to accommodate. The, the requirement to do that job has to come from a doctor. So if you were looking for accommodation based on a medical condition, the doctor has to, tell, to say that's what the accommodation is. And the employer is allowed in that case to, to ask more questions from the doctor so mm-hmm. to, to make sure that the doctor understands really what's being asked, uh, what, what the employer is being asked to do. Other types of accommodation, it comes down to whether or not the only way that the, employee, uh, the employee's rights could be protected is through the accommodation. So using the, the, the mother example, having to care for her children. If reasonably she has other alternatives, maybe a husband, a mother, a friend can pick up the child and watch them for an hour, then they may not, then they may not be entitled to accommodation. Really, the accommodation in that case would be a last resort. So if the only way, employer, I can care for my child is by you accommodating me, you have to accommodate. If there's something else that I can do, then that's on me. There's no duty to accommodate then. Uh, but for the most part, uh, when we're talking about accommodation, we are talking about medical ac- accommodation. When someone wants modified duties, modified hours, etc., that has to come from a doctor. But the employee should always try to explore alternatives before it comes to that, yeah? Always, always, yeah. The, yeah. the primary duty when one seeking accommodation is actually on the employee to try to see if they can figure it out. They only get to the employer once they realize, wait, the only way this can happen is with my employer's help. What can an employee do if the, if the employer does not provide proper accommodation or they're even let go? Yeah, so, and believe it or not, as wrong as it is, I see cases all the time when someone asks for accommodation and then they, the employer turns around and lets them go. So I ask for modified duties and the employer says, well, I'm going to just let you go because you can't do the job that we want you. That's a human rights violation. So if, if, you're, if you feel that, number one, you've been let go inappropriately, or maybe you haven't been let go, but your employer simply is not helping you or not providing the mm-hmm. accommodation that you're owed, give me a call. Failure to accommodate could be a, a constructive dismissal. An employer has the, the legal duty to accommodate. If they refuse, they could be in breach of the employment agreement. They may owe you compensation as if they had terminated you. So what you don't want to do is say, well, they're going to not accommodate me, and so I'm going to just grin and bear it, and I'll work the hours I'm not supposed to, or I'll do the job I'm not supposed to. Because then, number one, you're considered to have accepted what the employer is doing, but potentially more serious. If, if you're now injured even more, well, guess what? You're not helping anyone uh, right. if by working something you're not supposed to do, uh, or by doing something you're not supposed to do, you get injured more. So give me a call if that happens. You may be entitled to human rights damages. It could also be a constructive dismissal. one 821 5900 and Lior at com. We'll get to an email from Margaret. It says, I worked for a healthcare facility for 32 years full-time as an independent contractor. I was let go last week. What am I owed? You know, th- th- there's there's two uh, phrases here that just yeah. don't go well with each other. 32 years and independent contract. <laughs> right. Okay? Those two things cannot survive in the same sentence. It just can't be. Yeah. So if you work somewhere for 32 years, n- 999 times out of 1,000, in the eyes of the law, you're going to be considered to be an employee. I, I don't really can't imagine any exception to that. So, and that's without me knowing the hours that she worked. That's without me knowing exactly what she's doing. 
32 years is not going to be an independent contractor. That's an employee. That's an up. employee. So if she's asking me after 32 years what she's owed, in my, my mind, in my eyes, she's an employee. And if she worked there for 32 years, she probably is owed two years pay. And remember, that employer may say, oh, no, she's an independent contractor. Great. We can let her go and pay her nothing. Right. So nonsense. That would be completely and utterly illegal. So uh, it's very, very important, uh, Margaret, that you give me a call. Uh, you could be owed as much as two years pay. I want to find out a bit more. You're, you're very likely to be an employee. Non-solicitation and non-competition obligations. Again, uh, these are terms that people hear and don't always know what they are. Uh, what's the difference between non-competition and non-solicitation? Yeah, and you know these are terms that we often see in an employment agreement. You, yep. you started a job. The employer wants you to sign an agreement. One of the things or uh, that it does, it, it, it provides for a non-competition obligation, non-solicitation obligation. So, so let's break those down. A non-solicitation obligation is simply usually an obligation that says that if I ever leave employment, whether you let me go or I quit, I cannot go after your clients. I cannot solicit your clients. It doesn't say that I can't accept business from your clients. I just can't go to them and say, hey, I'm Lior. I used to work uh, at Chorus. I have left Chorus. I want you to take your business and give it to me. You can't do that if you have agreed to a non-solicitation obligation. That's what it does. A non-competition obligation is different. A non-competition obligation, as the name suggests, says that after you leave employment, again, whether you, you quit or you've uh, been let go, you cannot work for a competitor. You cannot work for someone that does what your former employer did. Mm-hmm. Irrespective of whether you're soliciting clients, you just cannot work for a competitor. Usually, that would also say within what radius. So you can't work for a competitor in Toronto or in Ontario, in Canada, in the world, and for a period of time. So you can't work for a competitor for six months or a year or two years. Uh, so, uh, so that's what those are. And, and for many people, depending on the job that you have, that, those could be some pretty, pretty uh, serious obligations and, and problematic ones at that. Why is it so, why is it so uh, important for a former employer to have a non-compete? Like, for instance, they let you go, why can't I go work for a different employer? Why yep. is it so important to them sometimes? In, in many cases, it's not. But for some employers, if you're in a unique industry or if you, have, if you do something that's very unique, uh, that, that's uh, pr- proprietary to you, you have a w- your own way of doing things, you've invested in this, an employee, you've taught them how to do things, you don't want to, them to take that skill, the things mm-hmm. that you taught them, and use that for the benefit of someone else. Uh, because you invest, every employer knows that if you have a good employee and you want to make them even better, you're going to invest in them time, money, resources. So you don't want that to go to benefit your competitor, right. thereby hurting you. So I understand that that desire to protect uh, your business. Of course, if you're on the assembly line and your employer wants you to sign a non-compete, that's nonsense. Are you really going to care if they go, if Toyota cares if the assembly line person goes and works for Mazda? Probably not. We'll talk about enforceability when it comes to those as well. We'll take a short break. Lee or at employmenthour.com. Another email or two before we wrap up. And 1-855-821-5900 is the number. The Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. The Employment Hour right here. You want to get a hold of Lior, 1-855-821-5900 and Lior at EmploymentHour.com. When we uh, took a break, we'll come back talking about non-competitive and non-solicitation agreements. Uh, are they legal and enforceable for both of them? 
And, and the answer is no. For the most part, uh, non-competition obligations are actually not enforceable. It's very difficult to enforce them. Only in the most extreme situations when we're dealing with very, very senior employees, the type of employees that if they go work for a competitor, their former employer is going to suffer a great deal. In those situations, it may be enforceable. For most people, a non-competition obligation is not enforceable, as opposed to a non-solicitation obligation that usually and almost always is enforceable. That said, someone may say, oh, great, so I, I signed a non-competition obligation, so who cares? Lior just said it's not enforceable. No, it's very common in this business, in the radio business, right. non-competes. And, yeah. and the thing is this, though. If you sign a non-compete and say, ah, it's not enforceable, so I'm going to go work for a competitor, mm-hmm. well, guess what could happen? Your former employer could easily sue you. And, yeah, maybe at some point you're going to win that lawsuit because it's not enforceable, uh, but in the meantime, your life is going to be made pretty miserable. It's going to cost you a lot of money. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty tough. So... We always take these things seriously. We never sign something that we're not uh, willing to abide by. If you sign it, you have to live with it. So in this case, if you sign a non-competition obligation, my best advice, if you're going to want to work for a competitor, speak with your employer. Tell them that. See if you can come to some sort of understanding. What you'll, you'll like co- shorten it a bit, or either shorten it or commit. That you'll never, or for a long period of time, stay away from clients. But just let me go work for whoever I want. Right. Many employers, if you if you're honest with them, if you if you uh, if you come to them and 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 you know tell them exactly what you want to do, are going to be receptive and willing to work with you. But just ignoring it and going to work across the street is an invitation for a very nasty lawsuit. So what happens if this this former employee uh, does not solicit a client, but then the client crosses the street and contacts them? Yeah, great question, because solicitation is all about who made that first move, who right. made that first overture. So I opened my own business. John, uh, I quit my job. I opened my own business. This client, uh, my former client, heard about that, and they say, hey, Lior, I just realized you opened your own business. I've always loved working with you. That happens all the time, right? Right. Yeah, yeah I want to work with you. Guess what? I didn't solicit. I didn't make the first move. They made the first move. That's fine. I'm not in breach of anything. Now, uh, that said, I still would want there to be some way to proving if challenged that I didn't make the first move. Maybe have an email from the client confirming that they approached you something. But generally, if you didn't make the first move, if you were approached by a client, you are not in breach of a non-solicitation obligation. So what could happen to me if I leave my employer and take a client with me? Yeah, if you you leave your employer and take a client with you, assuming, of course, you signed... Uh, a non-solicitation uh, obligation, you could be sued, number one, for the losses mm. that the employer has incurred, and potentially you have to pay back any revenue that you've made from that client. So uh, if you're in breach of contract, which is what uh, an employment agreement is, and as a result of that, either your employer's made money or you have made, uh, your employer's lost money or you've made money, you're going to have an obligation to repay your former employer. It's just a bad uh, situation to be in. Is there a time limit on it for solicitations? Well, it's, it's depending on what the agreement says. Every right. non-solicitation obligation is going to say you can't solicit for a period of time. Right. None of them are going to be forever. So usually we see between one to two years. What's more enforceable, the actual length of time or the or the radius? Uh, it, it's the radius. It's definitely, definitely really? the radius. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and But ultimately, it comes down to what is necessary for the employer to protect their business. And in most cases, our courts have said that a non-solicitation obligation is more is is enough to protect the business. You don't need a non-competition obligation employer. Right. So if I'm about to leave my job and I want to go work for a competitor across the street, but I signed a non-compete, I'm, I'm, my hands are tied. No, what do I do? Yeah, and that's where you go and you speak with your former employer and try to either get them to release you from that non-compete or limit its scope. Uh, that's really the best advice I can give you because otherwise you're going to be found uh, to to have breached the agreement. And even though you may 
you may win because it's not enforceable. If you're going to be sued, trust me, it's not going to make you very happy. Get to one final email here. We got Sean says, I own a small business with five employees. One of the employees has recently gone off on a disability leave. I have no idea how long he will be. he'll be away. Is there a way to find out? Can I hire someone to take his job in the meantime? Yeah. So let's start with the second question. Is You have an employee on a disability leave. Can you hire someone to take over their job? The answer is yes. You need to do what you have to do to run your business as the employer. So if you need that, you have an empty position, you need someone doing that role, yes, you can hire someone. That doesn't relieve you from the obligation to try to find a position for the employee when they come back. Now, if you want to know how long they, they're going to be off or, or what their limitations are, ask the question. Send them a letter requiring them, requiring them to go to the uh, doctor and provide that information They to have to you. do that, yes? They absolutely have to do that. Okay. As an employer, you're entitled to know that. You're not entitled, John, to know what the medical condition is. Gotcha. You are entitled to know how long they're going to be off, what the prognosis is of recovery. And what uh, the person that I hire in the meantime, are they hired under the agreement that if and when it comes time that you get the boot, the other person comes back? Or what if I like that person better? Well, if you like them better, it doesn't change the fact you still have to make all reasonable efforts to find a job for the, the first employee. So you may hire this new employee on, the, on a fixed-term basis, uh, or you may hire them on a casual basis. So, you know, you don't have to fire an employee to make room right. back for the employee on a disability leave. You just have to make an honest, real effort to find them a similar position. Before we wrap up, severancepaycalculator.com. Severancepaycalculator.com. Go there. It outlines how much you're owed if you ever lo- lost your job. Very simple to use. Quick. It's anonymous. Put in the length of your employment, your age, and your position. It's going to tell you how many months pay you're owed. If you lost your job, you have a severance letter in front of me, uh, front of you, or if you simply want to know what, what you'd be owed if that happened, severancepaycalculator.com. That'll wrap it for another week. If you want to get a hold of Lior now, it's uh, 1-855-821-5900 and Lior, L-I-O-R, at employmenthour.com. This has been the Employment Hour on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML.